Amen, y'all. Um, if you have your Bible, would you take it out? If you need a Bible, uh, the ushers will get you one. Let's all hold it up and get ready to make our declaration of faith. Let's all do it together. Ready? Go. This is my Bible. It is my primary source of spiritual nourishment. I will read it every day and become all that God wants me to be. My mind will be renewed. My life will be transformed. I will become fully surrendered to Christ. Therefore, I will hide his word in my heart so I can be all that God has destined me to be. Amen. Y'all sound wonderful. Would you remain standing in honor of God's word as we go to the text from which my assignment comes today? As you know, we are talking about the seven miracle signs in the gospel of John. And I have to tell you something. There really are more than seven. I don't know why everybody always says the seven miracle signs in John. I guess because theologians like to group John in, in, in portions of seven. The seven sayings from the cross is one of the things that people talk about all the time. And there really are more than seven. If you count the resurrection, there are eight. If you count the miracle catch a fish in John chapter 21 when he restores Peter, that would be nine. So uh, I don't want anybody to think I am theologically inept and tell you that there are seven when I know there's more than seven, but everybody talks about them. So if there were seven, this would be the sixth one, okay, in in, in the group. John chapter number nine, uh, verse number one says, now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him saying, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. In other words, uh, who, whose fault is this? And uh, why is this happening? And, and I know there's got to be somebody to blame. By the way, if there was always a cause and effect between sin and something that instantaneously happened to you, everybody wa- would have walked in here blind today. Can I get a good Amen. Right? Nobody would get out of here seeing today. Who has seen that this, this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with his saliva and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and he said to him go wash in the pool of Siloam which is translated sent so he went and washed and he came back seeing therefore the neighbors and those who had previously seen that he was blind said is not this who sat and begged some said this is he others said he is like him he said I am he therefore they said to him how were your eyes opened and he answered a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me go to the pool of Siloam and wash so I went and washed and I received my sight today as we continue analyzing and delving into the amazing exploits of our incomparable savior I want to minister to you from the subject rub some mud on it Come on, somebody, rub some money. In a day and age in which masculinity has been under siege and the evil effects of it are all over the world, I want to pump some manliness into the atmosphere. Like when we were growing up and you got hurt, you looked at your dad, your dad said, don't cry, just rub some mud on that thing. Come on, look at somebody right now, tell them, rub some mud on it. Rub some mud on it. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus. 
Would you minister by your grace and by your power to every single person under the sound of my voice, I pray in Jesus' holy and mighty name. And everybody said, you may be seated. As we come to the text, it would behoove us to remember the context and the pretext, which enlighten us to the fact that the Jews were celebrating what was known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles was one of three feasts which all of the Jews, no matter where they were living, would converge on Jerusalem. And so this was a packed city during this time. And the feast was a celebration or a commemoration of how God led them in the wilderness when they dwelt in tents. And you might recall from the story, God led them with a, a pillar of fire uh, by night and a cloud of smoke by day. And so one of the things they did in remembrance of how God led them is they lit up candelabras all over the place in J-Town. And so in the temple, there were all these big honking candelabras in every house. There was these big honking candelabras, and it was a celebration of God leading them by that pillar of fire. Now, it would also behoove us to understand that prior to this miracle in John chapter number 9, Jesus in John chapter number 8 walked into the temple and he said these words, perhaps even pointing at one of these candelabras. He said, I am the light of the world and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. And when he said this, this amazed everybody and the reason why it amazed everybody is because they knew what he was saying because everybody was celebrating by lighting these candles that God led them as a pillar of fire. So when Jesus walked in, in there and he pointed to one of these perhaps and he said I'm the light of the world he was declaring to everybody that he was God manifest in the flesh that he was actually the one who was leading them in the wilderness and of course when he said this the Pharisees went on tilt because the Pharisees saw this as absolute blasphemy how could you say that you are God and so when Jesus does this and they get go on tilt Jesus now looks for an opportunity to prove to them that what he said is absolutely true and this becomes the backdrop of this sixth miracle and in the story emerges a series of truths that allow us if we'll practice them in our own life or embrace them to be amazed by God and the first one I think is so significant if you need to ask why then ask if you need to ask why then ask. I want you to notice the first portion of the text, John chapter 9, verse number 1. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And as we delve into the text, the question for you is, has life ever hit you so hard that it has left you in a space, in a place where you wanted to ask God, Why? Why, why was I laid off, God? Why, why didn't I get the promotion? Why did the industry that I was in for so many years collapse? Why did my spouse of 25 years come home and tell me they don't love me anymore and are leaving me? Why did the doctor say that I have cancer? Why has the teenager that I raised in church suddenly gone astray, even got arrested? God, why did the loved one that I held so dear suddenly pass away? If you, ha you ha it's not that you've lost your faith. 
It's not that you don't believe in God anymore, but it's that the circumstances and the situations have pushed you to a place where you're questioning some things and in your mind there's a lot of things going on and maybe you've never been there and I thank God that you haven't been there, but life has a way of pushing every person to that place where something on the inside of you wants to cry out and ask the question, why God? And it's not just the messed up people. It's not just the people who are estranged from God who seem to get caught in this place at certain times in their lives. But if you read through the scripture, you will find that even the spiritually committed had come to this place. Because there is this innate belief in us that if we live for God and we are sold out for God, then life will always make sense. And and when it doesn't, and when we become perplexed and puzzled, it leaves us with this emptiness inside and we've got to go somewhere with it. And, and so when you read through the scriptures, you find that people like Moses question God. Exodus chapter 5, verse 22, Moses returned to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. That was Moses. That was the venerated. That was the man in the eyes of everybody before Jesus. Jeremiah, God's spokesman, he actually accused God of deceiving him. He actually accused God of deceiving him. And he said, God, you know the guy that was in the delivery room the day that I was born and he pronounced to my father and he said to my father, you have a son, well, curse him for saying it. Listen to what the Bible says. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse number 13. Cursed be the day that I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him very glad, saying, A child is born unto you, a son. Tell us how you really feel, Jeremiah. David questioned God. If you read through the Psalms, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And even Jesus on the cross. What did he say? He said, My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And so here is what I say. If you need to ask God why, then ask. Because number one, if you don't, you may wind up estranged from God. You see, there's something that happens. I know it seems like a strange thing to say, question God. It almost sounds disrespectful, like who are we, the creator, the creation, to question the creator. However, our relationship with God in regard to this is just like every other important relationship. If you don't deal with your questions, your doubts, your fears, your frustrations, it brings communication to a seeming halt and strains the relationship. So, for example, if your spouse does something that bothers you, that tweaks you, that you don't understand, if you don't have that conversation, if you don't deal with it, if you don't ask why, if you don't say, can you explain this to me, what happens is stuff starts to build up on the inside of you. And as stuff starts to build up on the inside of you, simply because you didn't get together and you didn't talk about the situation, what happens is you begin to fall further and further and drift further and further away from one another. Communication begins to stop. Intimacy shuts down. And all these things, simply because you didn't go and say, can you explain why? Why did you act like that? Why didn't you tell me the truth? Why weren't you home at time? 
Why do you hide your phone from me all the time? I'm getting in people's business right now. Why is it that whenever I come around, you shut the computer down and you don't want me to see what's on the screen? I need to know. I need to know because if I don't know why, there are going to be doubts and there's going to be bitterness and there's going to be frustration and there's going to be speculations and reasonings that are happening in my head. Oftentimes, the reason why people don't want to pray, the reason why people don't feel like lifting their hands in worship, the reason why people aren't super committed to the things of God and growing into the things of God is because there is this unanswered, held on to, why in their life. And I want to tell you something. God can handle it. God is a big boy. In other words, he can handle our questions and even our anger won't threaten him. It won't diminish him. It won't embarrass him and really won't even surprise him because the Bible says he knows the secrets of our hearts. He knows what is hidden on the inside. And so when it boils right down to it, sometimes you've got to have a conversation with God. Matter of fact, in the book of Isaiah, he said, come, let us argue this thing out. Sometimes you've got to have a conversation. God, I don't understand why. And God, this has perplexed me. And God, this has taken me back. And God, this has pushed me back. And I feel like I'm having a bout with doubt right now. But I've got to come to you. And I've got to ask you this question. Because if I don't ask you, I know there is somebody waiting in the wings who is going to fill in the blanks and his name is the devil. And what he is going to do is he's going to try to lie on you. He's going to try to tell me you're not good. He's going to try to tell me you don't care. And so if I don't bring my concern to you, I know I'm going to get the wrong answer. So I might as well go to the source. I might as well go to the fountain of my faith and to the place where I can be rescued from my why. Why did this happen, God? What's going on. Even the disciples asked the question. The disciples who were handpicked by God, who, who has sinned that this man was born blind, him or his parents? And you know what I love about it? Jesus gives them an answer. I love God because he, he said, call on to me and I will answer thee. God didn't say, I'll, I'll leave you in the dark. God said, I'll answer. I'll fill in the blanks. And so he gives them an answer, and this is our second key for being amazed, is move on from blame. Notice Jesus' answer. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Can I read that for you in my favorite translation of this verse? It's not my favorite translation in general, but it's my favorite translation of this verse. The message says it like this. Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause and effect here. We sometimes question God because we are broken. But we sometimes question because we want to blame. Blaming is steeped in our culture and steeped in our humanity. It dates back to the very beginning of creation. When God showed up on the scene, he looked at Adam and he said, have you eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And what did Adam say? Well, the woman you gave me, she made me do it. What did Eve say? She said, the devil made me do it. Everybody likes to blame somebody. Blaming is our weak human attempt to rationalize how we've gotten here. What I find particularly interesting about our text is how many blamers will come out of the woodwork trying to figure out your issue when they can't even deal with their own issue. Have you ever noticed that? 
And in our text we see this. Everybody is trying to figure out why this man was born blind. And this guy's not even born blind. He, this man's not even saying nothing. And by the way, sometimes when you don't know why, the best thing that you could do is just say nothing in this situation. Now, I'm not, not necessarily talking about not going to God. But sometimes what you just need to do is stand still until you see the salvation of God. Keep your mouth shut and so you don't dig, dig a deeper hole into this situation. Because the devil is looking for your mouth to communicate to 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 not communicate to to agree with his particular situation nobody is saying anything but they are conjecturing as if they knew and without ever meeting their parents they are assigning potential blame to them has anybody ever conjectured about you based on their life experience and how they would have done it or did it it's amazing how many doctors you find when you get sick how many psychologists come out of the woodwork when you are depressed how many family therapists you find when you go through a crisis suddenly people with no credentials and no degrees begin to speak into your life as though they have authority And I thought to myself one time, God, deliver me from the psychomaniacs and the pretend physicians who are trying to figure me out when they can't figure out their own mess. But they all showed up. And Jesus, Jesus answered. He didn't want his disciples to fall prey to the blame game. And so he checks his disciples motive and quickly encourages them to move on. You've got to move on from the blame game to see God amaze you. Blame is the devil's game. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is the one who likes to put shame and condemnation on people. He is the one who likes to keep us looking at where we are, where Jesus wants us to keep focused on where we're going. Blaming blocks blessing. Blaming blocks forgiveness. Blaming blocks healing. Blaming blocks restoration. Blaming blocks miracles. Blame keeps us bound, broke, busted, and disgusted. Jesus says, if you're going to see me amazing, you, you've got to move on from the blame game. Third key, turn your why into what God can do. Listen to this next portion in the message version. Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There's no cause and effect here. Now, I love this part. He says, look instead for what God can do. We need to be energetically at work for the one who sent me here. Working while the sun still shines. When night falls, the work day is over. For as long as I am in the world, there is plenty of light. I am the world's light. What's he saying? To blame is human. To ask why is sometimes necessary. So our anger is not pointed in the wrong direction. But eventually, we need to turn our why into a what? Look instead to what God can do. You and I can try to figure out the mess or focus on the miracle. We can get consumed with blame or we can focus on the blessing. We can look at the giants or we can look at the grapes. We can look at the size of our problem or the size and strength of our God. Jesus is telling them we need to grab hold of a more productive mindset. We need to change the narrative. We need to not focus on what will keep us bound, but what will set us free. We need to start asking ourselves the question, what can God do now? And when you look at your situation, you need to prophesy over your situation and determine God can. God can heal. God can restore. God can fix. God can rescue. God can bring me out. God can make a way where there seems to be no way. God can walk with me through the fiery furnace. God can make a way in the 
ocean and a river in the desert. God can pull me out of the lion's den. God can heal my body. God can open my eyes. God can restore and cause me to get over the cancer. God can make my health as it was like the days of my youth. God can, God can, God can. God can cause me to fall in love with my spouse again. God can restore my family. God can bring my child back. You need to look at your situation and eventually turn your why into a what can God do now? That's the question. Jesus said, that's how you see God amaze you. But then I love this next part. It's my favorite part of the whole story. John chapter 9, verse number 5. He said, for as long as I am in the world, I'm the light of the world. And when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with his saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. Key number four is you need to rub some mud on it. To fully grasp what's going on here, we have to understand the condition of this man. At the age of about six months, children start developing internal pictures of external realities. Psychologists refer to this ability to create and catalog mental images as representational intelligence. And by the way, the pictures that develop are the things that guide your life. Which is why when we walk into certain places these days, <clears throat> Target, we get in some mental pictures for the kids. Because we want to create this thing, these internal pictures on the inside of them that normalizes evil. Let's just call it what it is. Because we ain't playing with this thing no more. We, we're not trying to be politically correct anymore. We just go straight up call it what it is. It's downright evil. That's why we got a satanic designer designing these things when you walk into Target. So you see, Satan will honor your pronouns. Yes, Satan will honor your pronouns. But can I tell you what God did? In the beginning, he made them male and female. And let's start putting that picture back in the light and the heart of our kids. And so they call this representational intelligence. And the first internal image is mom. At about six months, they develop this picture. This is, this is what mom looks like. And at about eight months, the picture of dad comes along. And over time, over the first 18 months, they get a catalog of these internal pictures that match their external realities. And everybody's got this catalog in their mind. So like, for instance, right now, if I said dog, some of you just saw a chihuahua. Those were the foo-foo men. Some of you saw a German shepherd. We talk about manliness right now. I hope you saw a German shepherd. I hope you saw a pit bull if you're a man. I, ho I hope you saw a Doberman pinch. If you see a chihuahua, you need to get out from all this mess and get your man back. But everybody, everybody saw a picture of a dog. And these pictures become the life that we associate our words with. Every time we say a word, we, we see a picture. But this man had no internal pictures to match his external reality. All this man had was words, but no pictures to match it. This man was living in the dark his whole entire life. He was literally somebody who could not pick out the face of his mother or the face of his father. He couldn't pick himself out from a lineup. 
And so this man who is living in the dark becomes the perfect canvas upon which Jesus is getting ready to prove that he is the light of the world. He's getting ready to prove what he just said in, in John chapter 8, verse number 12, when he walked into the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles and pointed out the lights and he said, I am the light of the world. I am that pillar of fire that led you in the wilderness. He's getting ready to paint on a dark canvas. Most of us, by the way, in order to see color, you know you need 7 million cones in your eyes to see color. 7 million cones happening in your eyes so that you you can just see color. And if you don't have those 7 million cones, you can't see color. Eyesight, by the way, is a miracle. The retina, for example, conducts close to 10 billion calculations every second, and that's before an image even travels through the optic nerve to the visual cortex through these things called synaptic pathways. One doctor put it this way. Listen to this. This will astound you. He said, to simulate 10 milliseconds, 10 milliseconds, right? One. That's way more than 10 milliseconds. 10 milliseconds of the complete processing of even a single nerve cell from the retina would require about 500 simulations, simultaneous, nonlinear differential equations 100 times and would take at least seven, several minutes of processing on a Cray supercomputer. Keeping in mind that there are more than 10 million cells interacting with each other in complex ways, it would take a minimum of 100 years of Cray time to simulate what takes place in your eye every second. You know what that means? Sight's a miracle. It's a miracle. Now, by the way, if you think that that all happened by chance, see, people don't realize how ignorant atheism is. It's one of the most ignorant points of view that you can take because you then have to look at the human eye, for example, and realizes what happens in the human eye and you have to come to the conclusion that that, those, all that that we just explained, that we didn't even understand what the doctor said. He just said this. He said it's sophisticated complexity to the highest level. For you to believe that that just happened by random chance is preposterous. It's stupidity in the worst way, but it is masked in intellectualism that That is dumb. Even Darwin. Darwin. Yeah, you know who Darwin is. Listen listen to what he said. To suppose that the human eye with so many parts all working together could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. Darwin said that. Eyesight. It's a miracle. This man was completely blind. Which makes the miracle a miracle on top of a miracle. Because listen to me, this, Jesus didn't just heal a man who was blind. He didn't just put back what was originally there. He created something that never existed. In order for a baby's eyesight to develop like we talked about a minute ago, at birth they must have synaptic pathways or connections between the brain and the eyes that develop in the womb. 
The man had none because he was born blind. He was literally in the dark his whole life without synaptic connections that enabled him to see. It was with this man's canvas of blindness that Jesus performs what is known as synaptogenesis and creates a synaptic pathway into the man's brain so he could see by doing so, Jesus is saying, I told you, I told you who I was. I am the light of the world. And if God can do that with something that didn't exist, if God could do that with a nothing, what could God do with your something? What is your situation? What is your circumstance? What is it that you're going through that you don't think God can do something with? Because God can do miracles out of nothing. But what I love about this is how Jesus does it. He spits in the dirt and he rubs some mud on the man's eyes. What is Jesus doing? He is trying or tying this miracle back to the creation of the world. And remember this man, his canvas is supposed to show the Pharisees that he is the light of the world which they rejected. Well, how did creation begin? Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon, I love the language, the face of the deep. And darkness was upon this man's face. And darkness was upon this man's soul. This man was living in dark. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now in Genesis, God did this which, with words. He said, let there be light. And we don't quite understand what is happening here because all we use our words for is to communicate. But there is a higher place and a higher purpose for your words. And the higher place and purpose for your words is not just to communicate, it is to create. You see, we have these very low uh, uh, variations, if you will, uh, of being able to hear and speak. For instance, we only hear between 20 and 20,000 hertz. Anything that is uh, below that is called infrasonic. Anything that is above that is called ultrasonic. And, and we they're out of our range. We can't hear infrasonically, and we can't hear ultrasonically. But it doesn't mean that infrasonic and ultrasonic doesn't have power. Infrasonic has the capacity to create earthquakes and headaches. It's what elephants use so they can predict the weather and birds use in order to migrate. Ultrasound, on the other side of the spectrum, it has the power to kill insects, to track submarines, to break glass, to perform non-invasive surgery, to topple buildings, to clean jewelry, to pasteurize milk, to break up kidney stones, and to give you your first glimpse of your baby. And yes, I said of your baby. Not of your fetus, not of your something that's not human, of your child. Ultrasound has the ability to do that. Why do I tell you this? Because sound has the ability to create and releases power. So in the beginning when God said, let there be light, 
There was power released by his words that defeated and dispelled darkness. His words went low, ultrasonic, or, or infrasonic, and his words went high, ultrasonic. And whatever was on this end of the spectrum, and whatever was on that end of the spectrum, whatever was in the low places, and whatever was in the high places, had to come down because God said, let there be light. And nobody even needed to hear it. That's how powerful God's words are. And so in Genesis, when we come to the creation of the world, we find that God uses words to prove that he is the light of the world. But now we come to John chapter number 9. And it says, okay, you don't believe me? Let me pick a dark canvas that you've all seen before. But I want to up the level of miracle. And so I'm not going to use my words. I'm going to use my saliva. I'm not even going to use the words that are come out of my mouth because I have saliva. I'm just going to use the saliva in order to show you that I am God. And God uses this thing that comes out of his mouth and upgrades the miracle as if to say my saliva has the power to create synaptogenesis and cause a man who has been in the dark to come to light and life. I am the light of the world. And by the way, in the Roman Greek Greco world, saliva was thought to have magical powers. And on the Sabbath, you weren't allowed to create mud. And so Jesus, I love Jesus, Jesus is a bad man. Don't mess with Jesus. Jesus, he said, oh, y'all don't, y'all don't, y'all think that this saliva is magical? Okay. Y'all don't like mud on the Sabbath day? Let me mix it up a little bit. I think he was doing just to tweak the Pharisee. Who are you? You trying to tell me what the rules are? You trying to tell me who I am? Don't you know who I am? I am the God who makes the rules. I am the God who invented the rules. I am the God who can break the rules if I want to. Don't you tell me what I am. That's what Jesus did. But then I noticed this he then takes it and he, he rubs some mud on the man's eyes. And I love this because he doesn't just spit, but he spits into the dirt. Be careful when God starts to play in the dirt. God's played in the dirt quite a bit. You know, kids, they love to play in the dirt, don't they? You, you try to avoid the puddles when, you, when you're old, you know. You, you step over the puddles. The kids be like... They love to play in that dirt. God loves to play in the dirt. When God first played in the dirt, what did he do? He created mankind. So what did he do? He said, y'all think I'm just spitting in nothing. No, no. Let me spit in the place that it all began. See, y'all don't understand how powerful I am. Y'all need some parts in order to create something. I just need some dirt. I can take dirt and from dirt, I can form man. And if I'm the same God that formed man from the dirt and put in man what man needed in order to see, I'm the same God who can spit into the dirt and give man what they were missing when they first came out of the womb. Jesus is trying to let them know who he is. So the next time 
you need a miracle. The next time your situation is impossible, can I tell you what you need to do? You need to rub some dirt on that situation. Now, I'm not talking about go and get some mud and put it on your spouse and go and get some mud and put it on your money and go and get some mud and put it on your body. But I'm trying to tell you to remind yourself when you need a miracle who your God is, that he is the one who uses his words infrasonically and ultrasonically. He is the one who spoke to the darkness and commanded it to be alive. He is the one whose words carry a creative force that when he speaks, darkness is defeated. I want to remind you, and you need to remind yourself who God is. He's the one who came to set the captive free. He's the one who came to give recovery of sight to the blind. He's the one that came to make the lame to walk and the mute to hear and the dumb to talk. This is who God is. And when you need a miracle, you need to rub some mud on it. Remind yourself who God is. But then Jesus wasn't done. Jesus then did something. He said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed, and he, and he came back saying, the fifth thing that you need to do and experience and practice if you're going to see God amaze you is stand on why he was sent. Stand on why he was sent. Now, notice a few things from this text. Number one, the man walked to the pool of Siloam, which was down some steps from where he was, with mud on his eyes. Now, this almost seems counterproductive. I want to help somebody to see, so what I'm going to do is I am going to block their vision even further. Why did Jesus do this? Because I believe Jesus was letting us know something. Because here's how struggles usually go. I wish struggles just went like this. You pray and suddenly everything gets better. Don't you wish subtle struggles happened like that? But I found out, because I've been in this a long time, I found out that the end is always the same, because God is good, and his word never fails. But I found out that sometimes when I pray, it gets a little worse before it gets better. Sometimes when I pray, it gets a little darker before it gets light. And here's what God told me to tell you, that if you're praying for a miracle, and you ask God for something, and it didn't get better, but instead it got worse, that's okay. God might just be rubbing some mud on that thing so that way when he comes through you understand who God is but secondly the man made it to the pool down the steps with mud on his eyes I mean we don't we, we kind of over go wash in the pool of Siloam where is the pool of Siloam I've never seen the pool of Siloam. I don't know how to get me to the pool of Siloam. All I do is beg on the side. I don't necessarily have somebody to help me to get to the pool of Siloam. And so this man took this instruction with mud on his eyes. And he started walking down steps. In, in the middle of a feast. So there was a crowd. And when he was walking down the steps, I could only imagine that he might have tripped sometimes going down the steps. I could only imagine that there were some people who got in his way as he was going down the steps. I could only imagine that sometimes he got turned around and instead of going down the steps, maybe he was walking up the steps. Can I talk to the people for a minute who have tripped and fallen on your way down to your miracle? Can I talk to some of the people who somebody has got 
got in your way on your miracle? Can I talk to somebody, the people who got turned around on your way to a miracle? Can I tell you that sometimes when you get to the place that God said, you got to stop and celebrate. You may not be where you want to be, but you certainly are where you used to be. Sometimes you got to celebrate that with mud on my eyes, I'm in church today. With mud on my marriage, I'm still standing. With mud on my body, I'm still coming to the house of God. Sometimes you just got to celebrate that you've made it thus far. He made it to the pool. I believe when he made it to the pool, he celebrated. But then the man washed in the pool of Siloam. Make, make no mistake about it. There's a part for you to play in your miracle. You, you can't just bum rush God and get a miracle. The part you got to play to get your miracle is sometimes you got to take a few steps in the dark. Come on, are you willing? Are you willing to take a few steps? You can't see where you're going. You don't know how you're going to get, you don't know what's in front of you, but you're taking a few steps. And God, I don't know how I'm going to get there, but God, you told me to take a step. God, you told me to be obedient. God, you told me to take, does your faith have enough strength in it? Is it strong enough for you to take some steps in the dark? But then when he got there and took them steps in the dark, he obeyed what Jesus said. I don't understand how washing mud off my eyes is going to get me a miracle but that's what the man told me and if that's what the man told me then in faith I'm going to do what the man says you got to do what God says and if you need to wash the mud off of your life can I tell you how to do it The way you wash the mud is when you bring God a praise. When you bring God a praise even though you're blind. When you bring God a praise even though your marriage is falling apart. When you bring God a praise even though your finances are under attack. When you bring God a praise even though your kids are gone crazy. When you bring God a praise, can I tell you what happens? You begin to wash the mud off of your life. You begin to get your mind back. You begin to get your faith back. You begin to get your stand back. And all of a sudden, you're positioned for a miracle. This man, he got there, he washed that mud, but not just in any place. He washed it in the pool of Siloam. He said, what was that? Well, during the Feast of Tabernacles, they didn't just celebrate the light that led them. They celebrated the water that came from the rock, which is an amazing thing. Because you know that water came from the rock because they were complaining. That water came from the rock because Moses got angry and he hit that rock. And God still gave him water. Aren't you glad that God still, even when you and I don't deserve it, even when you, I, you and I didn't necessarily do it on God's terms. What did God do? He said, I know you need water right now. So I'm not going to let you be thirsty. I'm going to let you get a drink. But we're going to talk about this later. Don't think that God ignored your situation. We're going to talk about this later. Moses didn't go into the promised land because he hit that rock. You got to be careful. But what I love about it is they celebrated that. And here's the way they celebrated it. They went down the steps from the temple to the pool of Siloam. And they got a bucket of water, and they climbed back up the steps, and it was like a big procession. And they would dump the water on the altar. Sort of like heat wave a couple of years ago, Joseph. You remember that? I came to heat wave. They were having instantaneous baptisms for anybody that got saved. They had 92 baptisms or something like that in the sanctuary right here on the floor. Here was the baptismal. 
And every time somebody went in, more water fell over on the rug. And more water fell over on the rug. And there was water everywhere. And the whole time water was going everywhere. The kids are all getting excited. I'm going, I'm going to kill these kids. There's water all over my rug. They came with their water from the pool of Siloam. And they dumped it on the altar. And so what does Jesus say in the middle of this feast in which they're going to the pool of Siloam to celebrate where the water came from that came out of the rock? He said to the blind man whose canvas was complete darkness, what I want you to do is I want you to go wash in the pool. That means why I was sent. Can I tell you why Jesus was sent? Jesus was sent to set at liberty the captive, to heal the broken heart to bring deliverance to the blind and when you are needing a miracle do you know what you need to do you need to stand on why he was sent and that means sometimes you got to pull out your bible and you got to put it underneath your feet and you got to say i know it don't look like i'm getting any better but i'm standing on why he was sent i'm standing on the promises that cannot fail standing on the promises devil i ain't moving my feet devil i ain't backing up. I know who my God is. I know who I believed in. I know he is able. I know he can. I know he will not fail. I'm standing on the word of God. You got to keep standing. That's how you get your miracle. Stand to your feet if you're not already. He amazes me. Every moment, every hour, he amazes me. He doesn't want us to live in the dark. Not in any situation or circumstance. And he certainly doesn't want our souls to live in a place of separation, which is complete darkness. An eternity without God is described as outer darkness. There is no light. Your soul is empty. But that's not what God wants for you. Jesus came to set the captives free. He was sent. Not just for miracles in your body, we thank God for those. Not just for miracles in your finances, we thank God for those. Not just for miracles in your marriage, we thank God for those. He was sent for a miracle in your soul. To save your soul from sin. If you're here today. And you don't know where you stand with God. You don't know if you're right with Him. Can I tell you that you must take a step in order to see this miracle? And that step is to surrender your life to Jesus. With no one looking around, if you're here today, you say, Pastor, I don't know if I'm right with God. But today, I want to surrender my life to Him. I want to make Jesus my Lord and Savior. I want him to forgive me of my sins. Right where you are with no one looking around, just put your hand up. Say, Pastor, that's me. Would you pray for me today? I want to surrender my life to Jesus. Don't be ashamed in any way. We promise we won't embarrass you. Hold it up high if that's you. Pastor, today, I want to give my life to Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I always say this when we have the rare time that nobody in here raises their hands, which means... Y'all ain't about your father's business. I know I'm not supposed to talk like that to you, but I got to tell it to you straight. Go into the highway and byways and compel them to come that my house may be filled. Even first service should be filled. Second service is, but first service need to be filled too. Amen. Why? People need Jesus, but maybe 
You're there on the end of that camera somewhere. We don't know where. At a campus. Somewhere across the world. You're watching on the internet. And you want to surrender your life to Jesus. This is your moment for you to experience the light of the world. For your soul that is dark to become filled with the light of life. Let's pray this prayer together. Would you join me for the benefit of those that may be reaching out? Heavenly Father, I surrender my life to you. I ask you to forgive me as I put my faith in Jesus Christ. I repent of my sins. I'll never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, there's a little hand on the screen. Click it. We'll reach out to you. If you don't see the hand, write Jesus. We'll reach out to you. Jesus loves you. He cares for you. He wants to lead you for the rest of your life. To the rest of you, God bless you. Have an absolutely wonderful day, and we will see you again next week. God bless you.